and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 203, Nieves Fernandez and the Gas Pipe Gang. Around 1906, Juan Nieves Fernandez was born on Leyte, deep in the crevice of Leyte Gulf, where the island is at its narrowest. Nieves worked hard, she had little other choice, and into her 30s she owned and operated a wholesale business. Life was good. Then the Japanese invasion came along in December 1941, and though it took a while, Leyte and many of the other major islands came under Japanese control. Nieves would later say when the Japs came, no one could keep anything. They took everything they wanted. And this was the last straw that awoken the tiger inside Nieves Fernandez. With her business going under, thanks to the occupation, Nieves switched to teaching as she still wanted to make a difference and recognized the magic bullet that education is. But even this calling could not go smoothly as she was to witness horrid events. The occupation troops on Leyte quickly got bored and considering their outlook to everyone not Japanese, the cruelty started up. At times, people were staked to the ground, sometimes beaten, other times not. Sometimes, the Japanese soldiers just wanted to see how long they could last. Others had unnecessary surgery performed on them without anesthetic. And though this next one is a timeless move, some locals were forced to lie down, drink lots of water, and then the troops would jump on their stomachs, forcing the water out in a quick and painful way. But then there were the comfort women. By the time the war was over, somewhere between 50,000 and 200,000 women, mostly Asian, were forced into prostitution. The idea of soldiers seeking release is as old as war itself. And early on in this war, the Japanese military sought to reduce tension between the troops and the locals by establishing brothels, staffed with volunteers. It was hoped these establishments could curtail the random rape and keep the people quiet and productive, for that was the whole point of the occupation, to enrich oneself with another's resources. But soon women and girls were being forced to participate, some snatched out of their homes and taken away into the night. Next, local men were told to procure women for the troops, so they, having no choice, would post fake job openings, but the end result would be the same, entrapment and abuse. Which brings us back to the 38-year-old Nieves Fernandez. The local school teacher had had enough. Now, she knew there was no way she could chase the enemy out of the Philippines altogether, but she could try to save some of the women and girls on her island. It would have to be enough. First, she gathered some of the local men. In time, she would have 110 men working for her. Their sole goal was to make the lives of the occupiers hell just before they died. The Waray guerrillas, as the Americans would know them, were also known as the Gas Pipe Gang, for their use of improvised weapons, such as shotguns fashioned out of gas pipes and loaded with a combination of gunpowder and nails. The way Fernandez's life worked out, by this time she is proficient with a bolo knife, think of a curved Filipino version of a machete, and she could use a rifle very well. 
This was not unique in the Philippines, as the bolo was often used as a tool, but she was about to put her skills to a specific purpose. First, she taught the men how to fight with a bolo. Many of them had the basics already down, but she raised their gain and efficiency. Though in these terms, that should be considered an increase in their ability to offer up death. But Fernandez recognized that she could be caught or killed at any moment. Thus, her knowledge needed to become their knowledge. After the bolo lessons and general combat training, she got down to brass tacks by teaching her followers how to make shotguns out of gas pipes that could be loaded, again, with a gunpowder and nails. And with a few alterations, this contraption could also become a rather odd-shaped grenade. Though there were many in her same situation, Fernandez became the only or one of the very few female guerrilla commanders in the Philippines. And being a woman, her best attack was done quietly. First, she would put on a black dress because, one, she would be harder to see, and two, if she was found out, she could claim to be a comfort woman on her way to an assignment. Either way, she focused her attacks just south of Tacloban, and in time, her team killed just over 200 enemy soldiers. Strangely, but probably because there was so much local resistance in the Philippines, it took over two years before the Japanese found out about Fernandez specifically and put a bounty on her head of 10,000 Philippine pesos. A lifetime of using a bolo knife to clear vegetation came to have a new goal, the death of the enemy. Given her lack of strength and height, here was her favorite killing technique. She would stab her targets behind and below the earlobe, severing the carotid artery and internal jugular that leads to the brain and causes immediate unconsciousness. She would stab the blade to a depth of two inches. Then she would thrust it and twist it upwards at a 90-degree angle. If performed correctly, the victim would be unable to scream or gasp for air. The only sound would be the struggles of the victim, who would already be unconscious if the assailant came from behind. In October of 1944, General MacArthur chose the city of Tacloban as a logistical Allied military base. On one hand, this brought the Allies closer to the gas pipe gang to allow them access to better weapons. But on October 1944, there was little need. The Japanese were in full retreat. Then again, the diminutive woman amazed the U.S. soldiers with her stories of killings and showing them how they made their own weapons, which were crude, but effective. Now, to be sure, there were many rebels throughout the Philippines, of which Fernandez and her merry band were only one. But the Filipino guerrillas would show their true wealth in January of 1945. As may be remembered, when the Japanese finally won the Battle of Bataan, some 80,000 defenders were taken prisoner, including some 12,000 Americans. With the battle over, the POWs had to be moved, so they were pushed towards the National Highway and told to start walking. Between the 65-mile distance, the lack of care, and out-and-out brutality, at least 600 U.S. troops died on that trip, but the number of Filipinos was much higher. 
After this ordeal, about half of the surviving Americans were moved to Cabanatuan, about 50 miles due north of Manila, which was a former recruit training camp. What came next for the POWs was disease, murder, and slave labor, which reduced their numbers significantly. But the point is, some of the men of the Bataan Death March were still alive near the war's end. And it was in October of 1944 that General Douglas MacArthur returned to the Philippines. And in January 1945, the U.S. troops landed on Luzon and started fighting their way to Manila. Within MacArthur's troops was the 19-year-old private Galen Charles Kit Kittleson of Iowa. He was a part of General Walter Kruger's 6th Army, specifically the 6th Army's Alamo Scouts. Kit did not talk much. It was a running joke with his mates. But soon after landing on Luzon, Kit got permission to talk to MacArthur, and he laid it on the line and asked when if ever, he was going to rescue the Bataan death survivors, specifically the ones held at Cabanatuan, north of the capital. Kit had gathered up the latest rumors, but the point was there were Americans being held and had been held for a long time. It was time to set them free. Fortunately for Kit, MacArthur had seen him around and asked if he had been a part of any previous rescue missions, which the 19-year-old had. MacArthur told the young man, Well, son, let me tell you this. You be ready when the time comes. Soon enough, word came back from a Filipino guerrilla that the Japanese were ready to kill all of their prisoners once the Allied forces started getting closer to the prison camp. Worse, they had some 5,000 troops around the town of Cabanatuan and about 200 enemy troops in the camp at any one time. What the planners of the rescue could not know was that on Christmas 1944, there were only 530 POWs, and even that number continued to drop as the cruelty of the guards went unabated. Whatever was going to happen needed to happen now. As the idea had been introduced by two guerrilla leaders, it was agreed to, but it was also determined that the rescue could not wait for the first corps to arrive. On February 1st, no, a force would be put together from nearby units, and they would head out on January 29th. Soon, 133 U.S. troops and Alamo scouts, along with 275 Filipino guerrillas, moved out. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Mucci, leader of the 6th Ranger Battalion, was put in charge of this mission. The first thing Mucci did was to send out two teams of seven scouts each ahead of the main group to gather intel so he could plan the attack once the main force arrived. Now, this was easier said than done. The team would have to go 30 miles behind enemy lines, rescue some 500 POWs, kill the guards, and make their way back to safety, all before the majority of the enemy troops around the city could be alerted. At 9 p.m., 13 scouts and 50 guerrillas set out. Nine miles into their march, they came upon the National Highway between Manila and Cabanatuan, their goal. The men were forced to slow down, but as Kit was in the lead, they did keep going. He told an officer before they left, If I was in that camp, I'd sure hope someone come get me. 
When the scouts were about 700 yards away from the POW camp, they thanked the gods that the grass there grew tall. It was the perfect cover. They started scouting and gathering information on the guard towers and the tripwires that would raise an alarm, or worse, to the man who tripped it. Soon after, Colonel Henry Mookie, in overall command, reached the city with his 200 men. Reports came to him from the lead unit, but not all was great news. There was an enemy division reported marching down the same road that they were on. As one scout said, Our bacon will be out for frying if we collide with those bastards. Mookie reacted by saying, Okay, first we'll wait until tomorrow night to attack the camp. That way the division will have moved away and we can get better intel about what's going on in that camp and who's in there. And lastly, we've got to figure out a way to get close to the front gate without giving ourselves away. Reconnaissance reports said that the front gate was nine feet high and made of saw lumber with tons of barbed wire around the entire thing. And there certainly were POWs inside. They were spotted as they were stumbling around because they were so weak and scrawny. Overall, some 240 Japanese guards were in the camp. Muki decided to keep the plan simple. Two companies, about 280 locals, were to position themselves on the road to block the enemy from interfering with the U.S. Rangers and Scouts when they went into the camp. One local leader, Pajota, who was young and beautiful but scary all at the same time, said to the threat of a larger Japanese force breaking through, they won't. He was done talking. The way it worked out, the guerrillas would block the Kabu Creek Bridge, while other locals with a ranger bazooka team set up their own blocking position just southwest of the camp. Muki had to be saying to himself, yes, the guerrillas were excellent at hit-and-run tactics, but could they stay in one place and hold off a larger enemy force? The answer had to be yes, or none of this was going to work. Then, when Muki said he needed a half hour to get the weakened prisoners out, two guerrilla leaders said, we promise you a half hour. One of the last-minute changes was to gather as many carabao carts as possible. These were obtained when the guerrillas told the local civilians in the area to stay away from the camp that night. Then they took their carts, but promised to try to bring them back. All this was set for January 30th, 1945. That morning of January 30th, a Lockheed P-38 fighter flew low over the camp. There would be more flights that day, and the idea was to get the guards used to looking up. When the sun went down, Kit, 121 Rangers, and 13 Alamo Scouts moved out on their bellies. It took a while, but soon they were in a ditch, just outside the main gate. Through the slats in the boards, Kit could see Japanese soldiers smoking cigarettes or relaxing in their underwear. So far, so good. At 7.20 p.m., 10 minutes before the attack was to begin, Lieutenant John Murphy and his rangers were at the back of the camp. Their job was to get in, cause a distraction, then push all of the prisoners forward to the front gate. No one was to be left behind. Muki had said, I don't care if you have to carry them. We don't leave one of them behind. But suddenly, one of the Japanese guards near Murphy's position yelled out, 
Halt! Then he yelled for a comrade to join him. Murphy decided eh, they were close enough to H-Hour, or the jump-off point. He raised his gun and silenced the two guards. His men ran forward. It was go time. With shooting in the air, Kit, the other scouts, and the rangers jumped out of the ditch and made for the front gate. First thing was to smash that lock. One Japanese guard was poised enough to take a shot with his rifle, but his bullet hit one of the ranger's forty-five pistol. The gun flew out of the man's hand, but before he could think, what do I do now, Kit shot the guard, who simply slumped down. The ranger, his hand still numb, forced it to pick up the pistol, aimed it at the lock, and pulled the trigger. The forty-five still worked. The padlock gave way. The men burst through the now-open gate while the scouts stayed there to secure the entrance. The rangers went looking for prisoners. But no plan ever works perfectly. Suddenly, mortar shells were raining down on them closest at the front gate. Men started yelling out, I'm hit! I'm hit! One of those was a Lieutenant Roundsville. His friend crawled over to him. You're wounded, stud. Where you hit? In the ass, Bill. I need you to look at my ass. I've seen your ass. Another man was hit, and his upper right thigh was ripped open. Roundsville was reached first by the corpsman, and as they started to carry him away, he yelled out, Thanks for caring about my ass! One of the last American POWs to leave the camp had been found working on the camp's generator, and he was almost shot for his pains by the supposed rescuers. Lowering their guns, the attackers told him to get to the gate as fast as his weakened body would allow him. Then two trucks full of Japanese guards were trying to rush the gate themselves, not to stop the escape, but to make their own escape. However, a bazooka gunner, Sergeant Stewart, and his loader placed two well-aimed rockets at each truck. Soon both came to a stop as their bulks were in flame. The good news was that, despite the mortar attacks, the plan was working. The two separate forces were squeezing the guards. The Allies were leaving Japanese bodies everywhere they went. Many of the guards were shot while in their underwear. But that was not the problem. No, the problem was the fighting at the Kabu Bridge down the road. Some 200 Filipino irregulars there were trying to hold back the 2,000 Japanese who were suddenly aroused from a calm evening, and they sounded pissed. Meanwhile, the great escape was still underway. One POW, even though he only had one leg, beat many of his comrades to the front gate. Motivation is truly more powerful than ability. Then came a moment that Ranger Corporal Jim Herrick would never forget. Carrying one of the prisoners, who was barely more than a bag of flesh, Herrick heard him gasp and then go limp about a hundred yards away from the gate. The man died, never knowing freedom again. His body, though, would go out with the comrades. No one was being left behind. When all of the POWs were outside the gate, including the dead, Colonel Muki fired flares into the night sky. This let the Filipino troops holding back the enemy along the road at the Cabo Bridge know that the rescue was over. It had taken 
exactly 28 minutes. The camp had been wrecked, with many former guards now dead, lying around. Pajota and his Filipino troops had done the impossible. Try as they might, the larger Japanese force could not get past them. It was like fighting demons. So the rescue line, now that it was outside the gate, even though it was half a mile long, they went unmolested by the enemy. The blocking force and rescue party had both held up their end of the mission. 